Well, good morning. I'm sure you were greatly encouraged by that um, very simple and yet very profound study of um, our God. You know, one of the great things we, we discover throughout the Scripture is that believers have always felt free to claim God as their own. It seems very presumptuous of us, doesn't it? Uh, as if to say, well, actually, we belong to Him. He doesn't belong to us. But uh, God has encouraged that kind of thinking. And He would say, I am your God. And so, through the years, uh, saints have, have reveled in the thought, this God is our God. It's a great thing, isn't it, to put our arms by faith around Him today. Well, I'm going to begin this morning reading two short incidents in the Gospels. One in Matthew chapter 14, and the second one in Luke chapter 7. We're going to look again at Hebrews 11 for a minute or two later, and and there we see this statement, By faith, the elders, or the patriarchs, the early believers, received a good report. And so we're going to take a little test this morning. And we're going to find out how your report card reads when it comes to the subject of faith. Now, I always liked it, especially if it was a tough course, when the teacher uh, gave us a test and she let us mark our own papers. Uh, it doesn't, it's not quite as humiliating that way, and so I'm going to let you mark your own papers this morning. But um, I'd like to begin by looking at these two stories and asking ourselves, How does Jesus measure faith? Here in um, Matthew chapter 14, we have the story of the disciples crossing the sea. The Lord Jesus had told them in verse 22 to go to the other side. He didn't say go out into the middle and then go down to the bottom. He had specifically told them what to do. And uh, they they know this sea. They grew up on it. These are experienced fishermen. And they know the sea. But this is a storm that bests them. And the wind, we read, is contrary. The the waves are are tossing their little ship around. And in the fourth watch of the night, the darkest time of the night, the Lord Jesus comes walking toward them on the surface of the sea. And the disciples are terrified. They think it's a spirit. It is a spirit, they say in verse 26. And the Lord Jesus comes and clarifies it and says, It is actually I. It is I. Be not afraid. Then Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said to him, O thou of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, what is your natural reaction to this story before you consider how you ought to feel? Like, to us, it seems amazing that Peter 
would step out of that boat on onto a stormy sea. It, it's it's still stormy, all right. And he and you can imagine the thing up and down. And he steps out onto the stormy sea and begins to walk to Jesus. And uh, then <laughs> seeing the wind and waves, boisterous. Now it seems humorous sitting here on our nice terra firma, right? Like, was Peter thinking, if the sea was just calm, I'd be okay? I can handle walking on calm water. It's just, it's, it's so stormy. That's the problem. But we can't walk on glassy seas any more than we can walk on stormy seas. The Christian life is a supernatural life. We get up one morning, we think, looks calm, I think I can handle this on my own. If we're going to be overcomers instead of undergoers, we are going to have to learn that that the Christian life is a supernatural life every moment of every day. And whatever the circumstances, whether it's calm or stormy, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, right? But notice the Lord's assessment of this. Do you think he's a bit harsh here? Would, do you call it little faith for someone to get out of a boat on a stormy sea? We think that's humongous faith. We can hardly imagine doing the thing ourselves. But the Lord Jesus says, it's little faith. And why is it little faith? Well, Jesus was walking on the sea. And Jesus had invited Peter to come. And the safest place on the sea that night was not in the boat. It was where Jesus had invited him to come. It's the safest place to be. If we're in the center of God's will, if we're doing what He has invited us to do, you can't be any safer than that. You see, this this lack of faith was an affront to the trustworthiness of Jesus and His Word. And so Jesus calls this little faith. Now, if we go over to Luke chapter 7, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee is the town of Capernaum. This is Jesus' adopted hometown. He's been thrown out of Nazareth, run out of town. And he's made his home in Capernaum, Kafarnahum, uh, the the little town uh, which may have been Nahum's hometown, or it may simply be uh, the the village of consolation. In any case, there's a, a centurion, a Roman there, and this Roman centurion has, in the words of the um, locals. He is worthy, verse 4. He is worthy, and you ought, to, you ought to answer his request, because he's worthy. He's a Gentile, yeah, we know that. But, but he loves our nation, verse 5, and he's built us a synagogue. Now, I've had a little discussion with some of the uh, archaeologists there regarding the, the synagogue in Capernaum, because uh, they will tell us it's it's not a first century synagogue. It, it's much later, and the reason they give is because the thing's built backwards. If if you could imagine, if this is north, um, 
the lake is here. Capernaum sits on the north shore. Jerusalem would be way down there, or way up there. And the synagogue was designed in such a way that when you step out the door of the synagogue, you look across this beautiful expanse of Galilee. It's a breathtaking sight. At least it used to be, until the Catholic Church decided to build this massive monstrosity, which looks like a spaceship has landed, over the house of Peter. And they know it's Peter's house because they found his uh, monogram tackle box in the basement. So, <clears throat> anyway, that, that means that when you come into the temple, or in, uh, pardon me, into the synagogue, your back is to the temple. And the, the sacred box that held the scrolls would be to, at the front, you see. So when you're looking towards God, towards His Word, you'd actually be looking 180 degrees away from, uh, from the sanctuary. They would never, a Jew would never build a synagogue that way. You built it so that when they came into the synagogue and they looked towards the Scriptures, they would be looking towards the holy place. And so I, my suggestion is that that synagogue actually, or perhaps the one before it, you can see the basalt ruins of the synagogue before it, that that more than likely was the one that was built by this well-meaning but ignorant nobleman who built it the wrong way around. And because they appreciated his, his spirit, they appreciated his love of their nation, they went ahead and used it anyway. It's the only one they've ever found like that, built the wrong way around. Anyway, they say he's worthy. But when the man shows up, in verse 6 he says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. And then he says this, verse 8, I'm a man set under authority, have under me soldiers. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this. And he does it. All right, so here's a man. He says, I understand how this works. I see that you are a man under authority. You keep telling us, you do the will of your Father. You do whatever He says. The works I do, they're not my works, they're my Father's works. Well, I'm in a similar position. Well, in the same way, if you're put in a position of responsibility, then you will have those who are under you who do your bidding. And so He says, when I want my chariot ready, I don't have to go do it myself. I say to someone, go do it, and He does it. I say to my servant, go, and he goes. But now I have a servant, and when I say to him, go, he doesn't go. And if he's going to go, you're going to have to tell him to go. Because he's paralyzed. <laughs> he's paralyzed. And he can't go. And so you don't have to go there and do it. You speak the word, and it will be true. Now, if you go back to... We won't take the time, but if you go back to Mark chapter 6 and verse 6, Jesus is in the same area. He's in his hometown. And the Scripture says He could do no great miracles there because of their unbelief. And once again, the same word is used. As we have here in verse 9, Jesus marveled. In Mark chapter 6, He marveled at their unbelief. He was flabbergasted. He was amazed that they couldn't trust Him to do great things. Here He marvels at His faith. And He says to them, 
I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Okay, so we have two scenes here. Here's a man who gets out of a boat on a stormy sea in the middle of the night. Jesus says, little faith. Here's a man who says to Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. Just speak the word and it's done. And Jesus says, great faith. Why is it great faith? It's great faith because this man is asking Jesus to do something that nobody else can do. He's asking Jesus to do something that would so clearly manifest who the Lord Jesus was, that he is the omnipresent one. He is the omnipotent one. He is the omniscient one. He's so, he's so confident of this, and he gives the Lord Jesus this opportunity to show himself strong on behalf of those who trust in him. I remember some years ago hearing Brother William MacDonald explain that prayer is the means by which we take advantage of what are called the absolute attributes of God. A little old lady sitting in an old folks home somewhere wrapped with an afghan. She looks like she's sleeping, but she's not. She's really praying. And she's saying, Lord, I've heard about this place, Uzbekistan. Don't even know where it is. But surely there are people there in need. Some of your people, maybe they're suffering right now. Lord, whatever they need, you know what they need. Go ahead and help them. Do it for them. What's she doing? She's taking advantage of the omnipresence of God. She's not in Uzbekistan, never has been, never will be. But God is there. She believes God is there. And she takes advantage of the omniscience of God. I don't know what these people need, but you do. And she takes advantage of the omni, um, omnipotence of God. And she says, Lord, you do it. You do what you want to do in that land. It's tremendous, isn't it? To think of the, of the opportunity we have. The Lord has said many times in the Gospels, Ask what you will. And my Father will do it for you. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask my Father. My Father, don't me, the Father himself loveth you. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The whole thing, you know. The big, the big guys in the, in the Old Testament, when they felt really generous, or usually were really drunk, they'd offer anything up to half of the kingdom. But this scripture says, go ahead. God wants to give you the whole thing. So, now the question is, in, in the measure of things, would, would in, in all honesty, are you going to say that this is great faith in your heart or little faith? What is it? Well, let's, let's, uh, let's take a little test here. Uh, just, just before we do that, I want to go over to Hebrews 11, and I want to read the kinds of things that faith does. Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, let's read verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the sword, the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. 
Women's received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, in mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. So, question. Are these things, or anything even remotely like these things, happening in our lives today? Is this a totally foreign world to us? Well, here's, here's, here's question number one. You ready? Think of the most ungodly, anti-Christian person in your life. Maybe it's somebody at the office, someone in your neighborhood, someone in your own family. So ask yourself these questions. Can God save that person? That's the easy question. Does God want to save that person? No, not everybody agrees with this answer, but I think the answer is yes. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All right, it's getting tougher now. Are you actively participating with God in this project? In other words, by prayer, by the witness of your lifestyle by looking for opportunities to speak a word for the Savior. And are you expecting God to answer that prayer soon? I met a fellow in Casco, Wisconsin. I asked him how he got saved. He said, well, my brother-in-law got saved, and he was in a Bible study in Green Bay. And one night, the leader of the Bible study said, he passed around a pad, and he said, I want you to write on that pad the person that you think is least likely to get saved. He took that sheet and he photocopied it. He said, now this is our prayer list. And he said, I was the name that my brother-in-law put on the list. When my dad was growing up, there was a, a, a little fellow in the assembly in Scotland where he grew up in Lanarkshire, and he was a, a personal evangelist. And what he would do is he'd go to one of these little towns, little villages, and he'd go into the pub, and he'd say, who's the toughest man in town? And then he'd go after him. He figured if the toughest guy in town got saved, he would be Exhibit A, and nobody could doubt that the gospel was real if that man's life was transformed. My dad said one day he went to this town and they told him where this fellow lived, up the top of the stairs, this uh, garret apartment. The little fellow goes up to the top of the stairs, knocks on the door. Big fellow answers the door, what do you want? He said, I'm here to invite you to a gospel meeting. Man slams the door. (laughs) Knock, knock, knock. Fellow opens the door, he says, you keep bothering me, I'll throw you right down those stairs. Slams the door. Knock, knock, knock. (laughs) 
fellow opened the door, grabbed this little fellow, and hurled him right down the stairs, right to the bottom of the stairs. Slammed the door. Little fellow gets up, dusts himself off, back up the stairs. Knock, 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 knock. Big fellow opens the door, furious. The little guy says, now, look, all kidding aside, are you coming with me to the meeting or not? <laughs> the man was so impressed with this little man's courage, he, he came to the meeting and was gloriously saved. And my father remembered him in the assembly. And, you know, I think if we would look at our, our towns that way and ask ourselves, I mean, this is what Jesus did. Paul says, God saved me at the beginning of the church age, so no one would ever despair. How, how could you despair? Say, my, sorry, my, mission, my, uh, my relative's too tough for God. Paul says, he saved me, I killed Christians for a living. I think one of the things we need to learn to pray for is open doors. Sometimes we feel like our witnessing is banging our head against the wall, isn't it? We just get so discouraged. We don't seem to be making any progress. The New Testament is full of open doors. A great door and effectual was open unto us, and there are many adversaries, says Paul. A door of faith open to the Gentiles. A door of utterance. You ever feel like, I don't know what to say. I think of all the really good things to say when I get into bed at night. This is what I should have said. Well, well, to pray for a door of utterance, an opportunity to speak, the wisdom to speak, the knowledge to say the right thing. We can ask God for this, you know. People say, I don't know what to say, so I don't say anything. Well, I happen to know somebody whose, whose nickname is The Word. He'll give you the words to say. He wants to do this. I spoke on... Unopened doors. The Lord says, look, ask, seek, knock. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And, and personally, I think that there is a progression here. I think keep on asking is the repeated committing of ourselves to do His will, to do what He wants the way He wants it. Say, Lord, we don't want to do this. We don't want to come up with clever ideas. We believe that vision is seeing things the way God sees them. It's not being creative. It's being obedient. He's got a lot better ideas than we do. And it's just getting on board with God and seeing. See, the problem is his ideas sometimes are so big, it takes our breath away and say, Lord, please. I mean, that's, that's way too big. That's God-sized. He says, yeah, that's the idea. I want you to be involved in something that God is the only explanation for it. Only God could have done this. And so asking is that repeated entreaty, Lord, please, you take over. You change our plans. You rearrange things. You do whatever you like. We want you to own this. We want to work with you in this thing. And then seeking is finding every bit of information I can. It may be in a personal relationship, learning about that person. What are their interests? What are their, what are their concerns? What are their fears? And through building a relationship, we're looking for channels of communication so that we can begin to share with them in doses, in small increments, the beginning of truth that will reach into their heart. But in a larger sense, I think seeking is discovering every possible alternative, every opening. The Lord Jesus said, I came to heal the brokenhearted, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty the captives, and so on. 
So we ask ourselves, in our town, where are the broken-hearted people? Where are they? Where would I go to find them? They're at the hospital. Maybe they're at the, at the woman's shelter. Maybe, the, maybe there are some foster kids in town. The youth correctional facilities. Look for the brokenhearted. Where, where are the captives? Right? And so we begin to ask that question. Where are the opportunities in our town? And then knocking is that repeated waiting on God, looking for God, expecting God to open doors. You can't do everything. You find hundreds of opportunities. You go down to the, down to the uh, tourist bureau and the uh, AAA and, and uh, the convention bureau and, and you, uh, you call up the local police chief and say, our church prays for you every week. What, what are some prayer requests? What are some needs? Are there policemen now having marital problems? We'd like to pray for them. You, you find out uh, what, what the options are. What are the opportunities in town? And then you just go on knocking and you wait for God to open a door. And then you go through it. Brother Steve Kember, who works up in Canada, is a, a great believer in open doors. And um, I talked about him, uh, I think, uh, yesterday. But he, he was living in southern Manitoba. And, and he was struggling with trying to reach into this community. And he prayed for an open door. And uh, the next day, a man came to him and gave him a slip of paper and said, My brother-in-law wants to hear the message you're preaching. And this was his address. Well, his address happened to be Lacrete. Alberta, which was about 1,400 miles away. I don't know how many of us would do this, but Steve got in his car and drove up there. And he went to the door and knocked at the door. When the man came, he said, I am Steve Kember. I'm here to give you the gospel. The man said, give me 15 minutes. And he ran out the door and came back huffing and puffing 15 minutes later. And he said, we're ready. Took him down to a storefront. Over 80 people sitting there waiting to hear the gospel. Now, this is not in Africa. This is in Canada. This is just a few years ago. Steve said 27 couples came to me and told me they got saved at that meeting. Well, obviously, God had done some work before. God was in Lacrete before Steve got there. And we have to believe that God's in our town, too. And He's working in people's hearts and lives. And the question is, with whom is God working? You see, the problem is, we often misjudge who it is that God's working with. I was at a conference in Chicago, the inner city of Chicago, with an African-American guy, and, and he said to us, I didn't look like the harvest. I was lying, drugged out of my mind on a park bench in Memphis, and somebody came along and had compassion on me and took me to a rescue mission, and I got saved. He's now responsible for five rescue missions in the southern states. He said, I didn't look like the harvest. Sometimes people, we'd, we'd think they're the last person that would get saved. And so we have to understand where God's working, and if we would pray for open doors, He'd give us those opportunities. But you know, one of the problems with open doors is if you're leaning on it and you don't expect it to open, and God opens it, you end up on your nose, don't you? That was just the case with a... I've spoken on, on open doors up at the Toronto conference, and uh, the, the next day a lady came to me. There was no meeting in the morning, and so she came in the afternoon and she said... <laughs> You'll never guess what happened to me, she said. Um, I have a lady who works for me. Her name, this, this Christian, her name is Val. And she said, I have this lady named Faye who works for me. She's a Jew. 
Uh, she was abused by her father. She ran away from home pregnant at 14. She's bitter, bitter, bitter. And I've tried to witness to her, and it was just like witnessing to a concrete wall. And she said, um, after the message last night, I went home and I prayed, Oh, God, give me an open door with Faye. But she said, I didn't expect it to open the next day. She said, I went into work this morning, and I was getting things ready, and Faye walked in, and she said, you'll never guess what happened last night. She said, my husband was flicking through the channels. And uh, he came to a religious program. He never watches religion. And he watched the whole thing. And she said, at the end of the time, he turned off the TV, he turned to me, and he said, you know what these people talk about? They talk about being born anew. Born again. He said, that's what you need. You need a whole new life. He said, you know, you're not working for Val by accident. She knows how to do this. You need to go in tomorrow and ask her, how do I get born again? So she said, here I am. What do I have to do? Well, Val was gobsmacked, like, whoa, like she wasn't expecting it. This is the problem, you see. We read these verses in the Bible, and so often there's this huge disconnect between the kinds of things that happen in the New Testament and the kinds of things that happen in our lives. We expect God to be normal. God is not normal. God is supernatural. And God wants to do supernatural things. What America needs are not better arguments from Christians, not better apologetics. What they need to see is God working in such a way in our lives that nothing else will explain it. That's what George Mueller's experiment was with orphans. He had a heart for orphans, but he wanted... Uh, he wanted to declare to England that only God could explain George Mueller's life. There was no other way to understand this. Maybe once in a lifetime, bread trucks break down in front of your orphanage when you're inside praying for it. But when it happens every day, in every way, and God provides, it becomes a testimony to the community, there is a God in heaven, and God is at work in the lives of people. All right. I didn't get very far in my test, did I? Um, think of your city. And, and think of its spiritual need. Do you believe that through the Christians in your local assembly, God can fulfill the Great Commission in your day, in your community? To put it another way, do you feel that you are part of a team of people in that city who represent God? You are the ambassadors for God. You have an official position in that city that is more important than the mayor or the police chief. You represent God there, and He has called you to a mission to make sure that everybody in that town understands the way of salvation. Now, you see, if, if a fisherman went out and uh, he caught a fish, and, you know, he'd be pretty happy about that, and he'd come home and he'd, he'd talk about it for a month or so. <laughs> if he went out next month and he caught two or three fish, you know, he'd be a pretty happy guy. Unless he was a commercial fisherman. Yeah. And then he'd be out of business, wouldn't he? I'm afraid we, t we treat evangelism like sport fishing. Catch one and talk about it for a month. 
We need to bring in a harvest here. We need, it's, a farmer's not happy if he gets one seed. I hear people say this. You know, we did all this work. As long as there's one person saved, it's worth it all. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. But no fisherman would be happy with one fish. No farmer would be happy with one sprout. God's heart is toward the world, and, and He's longing to see many saved. He wants to see multitudes gathered in. And the promise of God is, He that goes forth, bearing precious seed, and weepeth, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Like sheaves, right? Arms full. And, and so, if we're only seeing one here and one there, the early believers, as they went out, they didn't expect just to see one here and one there. They expected to see a harvest, and they saw a harvest. And I am convinced that the only factor in the lack of blessing seen in North America, is, it has nothing to do with the hardness of people's heart. They were hard in Corinth. They were hard in Rome. They were hard in Athens. It has nothing to do with the lack of power of the Word of God. The Word of God is still as powerful as it ever was. The Holy Spirit is still working. We read it over and over again that when there was a lack of blessing, it could be directly attributed to the lack of faith in the people of God. And likewise, when there was blessing, it was often attributed to their faith. The, the first gospel quartet, when they brought this man and broke through the roof and let him down to Jesus... And what does it say? When he saw their faith. Not the man's faith in the bed, but the faith of his friends who brought the man to Jesus. Now, when you bring someone to Jesus, you're going to have problems just like they. And you don't come to the door and say, oh, well, it's too crowded, maybe some other day. You find a way to get in there if it means breaking open the roof to get them in. Jesus saw their faith. What, what do you mean faith? It was faith that overcame all circumstances. Like the, like the faith in Hebrews 11. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this, concerning this little company of believers in Rome, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. Almost an identical phrase. Here was a little group of Christians, everybody, not just in town, Everybody in the countryside knew about the Christians in Thessalonica. So that's my question. If I came to your where your assembly meets and I went around and knocked on the doors within a mile of your chapel, would they know you exist? Would they know who you are? They know what you believe, what you stand for? I'm afraid our lives are so normal, we fit right in. We need to begin to seek God's face and ask Him to do things in our lives that only can be explained by the active participation of God. All right, final question, and then I've got to close. Do you believe that God once did mighty, miraculous deeds? Do you believe He still can do these mighty deeds? Do you believe that the Lord has called you to a life of miracles? Let me conclude by reading these verses in John chapter 14.
The Lord Jesus is speaking to His own in the upper room, and He says, verse 11, Do you believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father in Me? Or else believe Me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes on Me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to My Father. And whatever you shall ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. Alright? So the objective is that the Father is glorified in the Son when miracles occur in the lives of God's people. And I I have the sneaking suspicion that a lot of Christians have developed a theology that is miracle-proof. It can be explained in the natural terms, in the normal way, the normal course of events, everything can be explained that way. Now let's, let's notice that these greater miracles are not necessarily eyes getting their sight in the, in the physical sense or, or people being raised in the physical sense, right? I was, I was flying one time and I, I started to witness to a lady beside me and she said, well, I'm a Christian too. I said, you are, great. What do we talk about? She said, did you hear about that man who was raised from the dead in Africa? I said, uh, which one? She said, which, what do you mean, which one? Is there more than one? I said, well, I've heard about millions. Millions? Well, yeah. I said, you don't mean this guy, Bonky, that supposedly resuscitated somebody that had a car accident. Poor guy's got to have two funerals now. That's no favor. <laughs> He's got to die twice. No, no. The, the greater miracle, said Jesus, is I'm going to give 5,000 people physical bread. You're going to give them spiritual bread. And they're going to come to life before your eyes. And so the greater miracle is the spiritual miracle, right? And these are the miracles that God has called us to. And we ought to be seeing these on a regular basis. Seeing people who, it seems, are hopeless. People without help. People who are despairing. And then to see their lives transformed and the joy of the Lord shining from their faces. Going back into their neighborhoods, into their families. And seeing the transformation of that life. You know, there are a lot of assemblies that haven't used their baptistry in a decade. It's not right. We should be seeing this on a regular basis. I was... No time. I was going to tell you a great story, but oh well, we're out of time. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank Thee that if there's only one God in the universe, that Thou art the God who is. A God who delights to show mercy. The God who delights to bless, who delights to provide for the needs of your people. A God who delights to answer our prayers. To do things that surprise us. To answer in ways that are exceeding abundantly above anything we could imagine. Oh God, we're ashamed that our lives are so normal. That we fit in so well. And we want our lives and our local churches to be known as places not where things are done to show off or to attract a crowd, but where things are done so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that the only explanation is that the Jesus who died is so obviously alive 
because He lives in our hearts. He works in our lives. He rescues souls that seem to be beyond hope. He puts back marriages that seem to be in ruins. He does things that only God can do. We ask Thee, O God, to enlarge our faith, increase our faith. Give us boldness in faith. We remember that it says of Abraham that he was great in faith, but of Sarah, she was not great in faith. But she she believed God. She counted God faithful who had promised. And she was given strength to believe. Oh God, give us strength to believe and to seek ways in our own lives to put ourselves in positions of dependence on Thee in such a way that when God answers, our unsaved neighbors and family members and friends will know of a truth that God is working and God will work in their lives as well. Help us to be, as it were, the living answers to prayer that people will see God does answer prayer because He answered our prayers and did things that only He could do. Keep us from praying prayers that we ourselves could answer. Help us to pray prayers that only God can answer. We ask these things in the Savior's name.